0: أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله، الله بالله من الشيطان بسم الله. Ar-Rahman Ar-Raheem Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Raheem Maliki yawm din Iyya kan abdu wa Iyya kan المستقيم الذين عليهم
1: after reciting the tashahhud Tao's and surah al-fatiha Hazrat Khleipmisi the Fifth, aziz stated: Accounts in the life of Hazrat Umar radiAllahu Anhu, were being narrated, and also the conquests that took place during his era. With regards to the conquest of Madain, Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmad Sahib writes in Life and Character of the Seal of the Prophets, regarding a prophecy. Which the Holy Prophet made after being informed by Allah the Almighty. Referring to this, he writes While the ditch was being dug, a stone which simply refused to break was excavated. The state of the companions was that due to three days of continuous starvation, they felt faint. Unable to succeed in this task, they finally presented themselves before the Holy Prophet ﷺ and submitted, There is one stone which knows no breaking. At the time, the Holy Prophet ﷺ had also tied a stone on his stomach due to hunger. But he immediately went there, upon their request, and lifting an axe, struck the stone in the name of Allah. When the iron hit stone, a spark flew. Upon which the Holy Prophet loudly said, God is the greatest. Then he said, I have been granted the keys of the kingdom of Syria. By God, at this time I am beholding the red stone palaces of Syria. His stroke had somewhat crushed a portion of the stone. The Holy Prophet wielded the axe a second time in the name of Allah, which caused a spark again. Upon which the Holy Prophet said, God is the greatest. Then he said, This time I have been granted the keys of Persia, and I am witnessing the white palaces of Madain. Now the rock had been broken into a large degree. The Holy Prophet builded the axe a third time, which resulted in another spark, and the Holy Prophet said, God is the greatest. Then he said, Now I have been endowed the keys of Yemen, and by God I am being shown the gates of Sana'a at this time. Finally, the rock was broken completely. In another narration it is related that on every occasion the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would loudly proclaim the greatness of God and after the companions would inquire he would relate his visions. After this temporary hindrance had been removed the companions engaged in their work once again i.e. the breaking of the rock and they began digging the trench again. These were visions of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. In other words, during this time of affliction, Allah the Exalted created a spirit of hope and delight amongst the companions by showing the Holy Prophet ﷺ visions of the future victories and prosperity of the Muslims. However, apparently at the time, the circumstances were of such difficulty and hardship that upon hearing these promises, the hypocrites of Medina mocked the Muslims saying, They do not even possess the strength to step out of their own homes and are dreaming of the kingdoms of Caesar and Chosros. However, in the estimation of God, all of these bounties have been decreed for the Muslims. Therefore, these promises were fulfilled at their respective times. Some were fulfilled in the last days of the Holy Prophet while most were fulfilled in the era of his Khulafa, and thus became a source of increasing the Muslims in their faith and gratitude. The promise of the conquest of Madain was fulfilled at the hands of Hazrat sa during the Caliphate of Hazrat Umar The Holy Prophet was shown that Madain would be conquered and this was fulfilled during the era of Hazrat Umar. After conquering Qadisiyah, the Muslim army went to conquer Babylon, an ancient city of modern-day Iraq. After conquering Babylon, they reached a historical city by the name of Qusa. This is situated in the surroundings of Babylon. Furthermore, Qusa was that very place where Nimrod imprisoned Prophet Abraham and the prison was still present at the time. When Hazrat Saad reached the palace and saw the prison, he recited the following verse of the Holy Qur'an, ayamu الْأَيَّامُ نُدَاوِلُهَا بَيْنَ nas, Meaning, such days we cause to alternate among men, that they may be admonished. Advancing from Kusa they reached a place called Baharsir. This is the name of that part of Madain, a city of Iraq, which is located at the western bank of the Tigris River. The Chaucerous hunting lion was kept at this place. When the army of Hazrat Saad approached, they let the lion loose on the army and the lion ferociously attacked them. The brother of Hazrat Saad Hashim bin Abi Waqas was the chief of the vanguard of the army. He struck the lion with his sword and killed it. Following this, the Battle of Madain ensued. Madain is also part of Iraq and is located at a short distance from Baghdad, towards the southern bank of the Tigris. What is the reason for naming this place Madain? Many cities were established here, one after the other, and as such, the Arabs started calling the place Madain, i.e. a collection of cities. Madain was the seat of the throne of the Chosros, and home to his white palaces. The Tigris River was located between the Muslims and the people of Madain, and the Persians had destroyed all the bridges crossing the river. In Tariq At-Tabadi, it is written that Hazrat Saad searched for boats in order to cross the river. However, he realized that the Persians had already taken control of the boats. Hazrat Saad wished for the Muslims to cross the river, but did not instruct them due to sympathy for them. Subsequently, some villagers told them how to cross the river and showed them that if they go from a certain place, they will be able to cross it easily. However, Hazrat Saad did not act in accordance with this either. In the meantime, the river overflowed. One night, he was shown in a dream that the horses of the Muslims entered the water and crossed the river, even though it was overflown. In order to fulfill this dream, Hazrat Saad firmly determined to cross the river and said to the army, O Muslims, the enemy has taken the river as its refuge. Come and let us swim across it. Having said this, he led his horse into the water. The soldiers of Hazrat followed their leader and led their horses into the river as well, and the Muslim army crossed the river. When the opposing army witnessed the scene, they started screaming out of fear and retreated, saying "Divan Amdand, divan Amdand, meaning demons are coming, demons are coming. The Muslims advanced and captured the city and the white palaces of the Chosros. The Chosros had already relocated his family members prior to the Muslims entering the city. As such, the Muslims easily captured the city. In this manner, the prophecy of the Holy Prophet was fulfilled, which he saw on the occasion of the Battle of Khandak when he was digging the ditch and struck the rock with his pickaxe. I, I was shown that the white palaces of Madain falling, seeing the deserted state of these palaces, Hazrat Sad recited the following verses of Surah Ad dukhan وَأَوْرَثْنَاهَا قَوْمًا آخَرِينَ Meaning, how many were the gardens and the springs that they left behind, and the cornfields and the noble places, and the comforts wherein they took delight. Thus it was destined to be, and we made another people inherit these things. Hazrat Sa'd ordered that the royal treasure and wealth be gathered in one place. In this treasure were memorials of kings, which numbered in the thousands, among which were coats of mail, swords, daggers and royal clothes. There was also a golden horse, which had a silver saddle on it. Rubies and emeralds were encrusted in its chest. Likewise, there was a silver camel, on which was a golden pack-saddle, a bridle coated in high-quality rubies. Among the spoils of war was a rug, which was known as Irani Bahar. Its base was of gold, and contained a tree made of silver, and its fruits of gems. The army collected all of these things, and the Muslim soldiers displayed the utmost honesty and integrity. These qualities of theirs are so evident, as the Muslim soldiers brought whatever they had found, exactly the way it was to the commander. Thus, when everything was brought and laid out, and the plain was glittering from afar. Upon witnessing this, Hazrat Saad was astonished and said, Those who took nothing of these riches are most certainly honest to the highest degree. As was custom, after its distribution, one-fifth of the spoils of war was sent to the Khalifa. The rugs and ancient relics were sent in a manner that it was a sight to behold when the Arabs saw the opulence and grandeur of the Persians and the success and victory of the Muslims over them. When this was shown to Hazrat Umar, he was also greatly amazed by the honesty and integrity of the army. Hazrat Umar was also astounded by the level of integrity of the soldiers. A person by the name Muhallim, who was tall and handsome, lived in Medina. Hazrat Umar ordered that the garments of Noshirwan be brought to him to wear. These garments were in varying conditions. Thus he was made to wear all the garments one by one. The people were left amazed by the beauty of these garments. Similarly, that rug by the name of Bahar was distributed. Then there is the Battle of Jalula, which took place in 16 Hijri. After the conquest of Madain, the Persians gathered in Jalula to begin preparing for battle once more. Upon the instructions of Hazrat Umar, Hazrat Saad sent Hashim bin Utbah with an army of 12,000 to face this Persian army. Jalula is a city of Iraq, situated on the route between Khorasan and Baghdad. This is where a battle between the Muslims and the Persians ensued. When the Muslims arrived, they surrounded the city, and this siege lasted for months. Every now and then, the Persians would come out of their fortresses to launch attacks. In this way, 80 battles took place. The Muslims wrote about the victories in Jalula to Hazrat Umar, mentioning that Hazrat Kaka was encamped in Hulwan. In this letter, permission was requested to pursue the non-Arabs, but Hazrat Umar denied the request, i.e. permission was not granted to pursue them. Instead, he said, I want a wall erected between the mountainous regions of Sawad, i.e. southern Iraq, and Iran, so that neither the Persians come to us, nor we go to their lands. For us, the villages of Sawad are sufficient. I prioritize the safety and well-being of the Muslims over attaining spoils of war. I.e. he did not have any desire to collect spoils of war. Safeguarding the lives of Muslims was more important. According to one narration, Hazrat Saad sent bowls of gold and silver and clothes as part of the spoils of war with Kuzai bin Amr Dawli and captives with Abu Mufazir Aswad. According to another account, the spoils were sent with Guzai and Abu Mufazir, the details of which were sent via Ziyad bin Abi Sufyan, as he was responsible for the inventory, and he would keep it all accounted for in registers. When everything had reached Hazrat Umar, Ziyad spoke to Hazrat Umar about all the details of the spoils of war. Hazrat Umar asked, Would you stand before the Muslims and relate to them the details which you are telling me? Ziyad replied, By God, there is no one in all the lands who I am more fearful of than you. So why would I not be able to speak before others? Hence, Ziyad stood before the people and described all the conditions, mentioning all the achievements of the Muslims, the way in which the battles took place, and how the spoils of war were attained. He also mentioned that the Muslims wished to pursue the enemy in their land. Having heard his speech, Hazrat Umar said that he was a very eloquent speaker. Ziyad replied, The achievements of our army is what has made my tongue flow. In one narration it is mentioned that when the spoils were presented before Hazrat Umar, Anhu, he said, this is such a vast amount of spoils of war that no building can contain it all, which is why I wish to distribute it right away. Hazrat Rahman bin Awf and Abdullah bin Arqam watched over the spoils of war in the open space of the mosque. The wealth was brought and placed in the open space of the mosque. Then these two companions kept watch over it. In the morning, Hazrat Umar radiallahu anh, came to the mosque with the people. He removed the cloth from the spoils of war and saw rubies, emeralds and various precious gems. Upon seeing this, Hazrat Umar began to weep. Hazrat Abdurrahman Rahman said to Hazrat Umar, O leader of the faithful, why are you crying? By Allah, this is the time to be grateful. Hazrat Umar replied, By Allah, the thing that has made me cry is that whichever nation is granted these treasures by Allah, malice and jealousy between them increases. i.e. he was worried that through the riches that they have been bestowed with, it could be the case that their brotherhood turns into jealousy and malice as a result of it. The thing that made me weep was that whichever nation increases in the jealousy of one another, they become embroiled in civil war. One should ponder and deliberate deeply over this statement. One should seek istighfar regarding what Hazrat Umar has stated. We are witnessing that the more wealth gained by the Muslims only increased mutual hatred and jealousy between them. Whether that is among the Muslim nations who have an abundance of oil or they have other wealth. And if one observes closely, the same is the case individually. There is a lack in righteousness. During the Battle of Madain, the Persian king Yazdegerd left the capital Madain and travelled with his family and workers to Hulwan. When Yazdegerd learnt of the defeat at Jalula, he left Hulwan and travelled to Zhe and placed Khusro Shanum, a renowned officer, with a few military contingents to defend Hulwan. Hazrat Saad stayed in Jalula and sent Kaka towards Hulwan Kaka reached Qasr-e-Shirīn which is 3 miles from Hulwan when Khusro Shanum launched an attack but was defeated and as a result he ran away Kaka reached Hulwan and declared peace for all the chiefs of surrounding areas came and accepted jizya and agreed to support Islam. How did the conquest of Masabzan take place? Regarding this battle, it is mentioned that Hazrat Hashim bin Utbah, who was the commander in chief of the army at Jalula, returned to Mada'in whilst Hazrat Saad was residing there when they received news that a Persian army under the command of Azim, son of Hormuzan, was heading towards open plains to confront the Muslims. Hazrat Saad sent news of this to Hazrat Umar. Hazrat Umar ordered for an army to be sent under the command of Darar bin Khattab with Ibn Hazil to be sent as an advance guard and Abdullah bin Wahab Rasbi and Madarib bin Fala uh, Ijili, as commanders of the flanks. The Islamic army left to confront the Iranians and met the army near the plains of Masabzan. The battle took place at a place called Handaf, in which the Iranians were defeated. The Muslims advanced ahead and captured Masabzan. The residents of Masabzan began fleeing the city. But Darar bin Khattab invited them to live in peace within their city. They accepted the invitation and returned to their homes. Baladri has stated a different narration with regards to the conquest of Masabzan. In one narration, it is stated that Abu Musa Ash'ari captured the city on the return from the Battle of Nahawand without fighting. The accounts regarding the conquest of Khuzestan has been stated. Khuzestan was a province of Persia. Prior to accepting Islam, Hormuzan was the governor of this province. This area and the people residing in this area were known as Khuz, i.e. those residing in the mountainous area between the outskirts of Ahwaz, Faris, Basra, Was and Isfahan. In 14 Hijri, Owing to certain military advantages, Hazrat Umar decided to open up a small front in Iraq and sent a small army under the command of Utba bin Ghazwan to the frontier. Initially, Basra was used as a garrison town for the army. This army not only captured neighboring enemy lands, but was beneficial in the military campaign in Iraq, in that the Persians, who were engaged in bigger battles, On the outskirts were receiving constant news that their comrades were being defeated and were unable to go to assist them. It seems that the main objective of occupying this front and placing an army here was to stop the reinforcements and aid reaching the Persians, and also to stop them attacking the Muslims. The commander of this army went to Hejaz in order to perform the Hajj and to meet with Hazrat Umar. In his absence, Hazrat Umar assigned the command to Hazrat Mughira bin Shoba. Hazrat Mughira bin Shoba was accused of committing an offence which was contrary to the moral code, as a result of which Hazrat Umar deposed him and called him to Medina for an investigation. Hazrat Umar appointed Hazrat Abu Musa Ashari as the commander of the army in his place. Nonetheless, after investigation, it was concluded that the allegation leveled against Hazrat Mughira was false. There are varying opinions as to the year, whether it was 16 Hijri or 17 Hijri. The Islamic army continued its campaigns and advanced further. The Muslims captured Ahwaz, a famous city in Khuzestan. The historian Tabari has mentioned this conquest to have taken place in 17 Hijri, whereas some other narrations put this year to be 16 Hijri. Regarding this conquest, Tabari has stated that the commander at the time of the conquest was Utba bin Ghazwan, whereas Baladri has mentioned that Ahwaz was conquered prior to the return of Utbah bin Ghazwan and was completed under the command of Mughira bin Cho'ba and Hazrat Abu Musa Ash'ari. It is mentioned that Hazrat Mughira conquered Ahwaz. Initially, the chief of Ahwaz, Bahruz, fought against the Muslims, but later reconciled. After a short while, Hazrat Abu Musa Ash'ari was appointed as the commander of the Muslim army, covering the area of Basra, in place of Hazrat Moghira. Bahruz broke the agreement and rebelled. Subsequently, Hazrat Abu Musa Ashari confronted him, and after the battle, he captured the city. This took place in 17 Hijri. During the conquest of Ahwaz, the Muslim army took many prisoners. But under the orders of Hazrat Umar, they were all released. None were to be made into slaves all of the prisoners were freed. In Taburi, it is written that the Persians would launch raids against the Muslims using two routes. Two centers for the raids along these routes were Nahartira and Manazir. The Muslims captured both these centers. In most places, we see that wherever the Muslims were attacked from, and from wherever raids were launched, the Muslims later attacked those places and captured them. Baladri has written that Abu Musa Ashari captured Nahartira alongside the conquest of Ahwaz. After the capture of Ahwaz, he advanced towards the other centre, i.e. Manazir, and after laying a siege around the city, an intense battle took place. During the siege, one day, a Muslim by the name Muhajir bin Ziyad was fasting, and with the intention of sacrificing his life for the sake of God Almighty, he headed towards the enemy. Rabi, the brother of Muhajir, told Abu Musa, the commander of the army, that his brother was entering the battlefield while in a state of fasting. Abu Musa made an announcement that whoever is fasting should break their fast or not enter the battlefield. When Muhajir heard this announcement, he took a sip of water to break his fast and said that he had done this solely out of obedience to the commander. Otherwise, he was not thirsty. Saying this, he took his weapons and attacked the enemy and was martyred in the battle. The people of the city severed his head and placed it on the parapet of the palace. The siege became prolonged. Perhaps on the instructions of Hazrat Umar, Hazrat Abu Musa left one contingent of the army under the command of Muhajir's brother, Rabi, to continue the siege of Manazir and himself left Sus. Rabi continued fighting and eventually captured the city. Many people were taken prisoners. However, in light of the instructions of Hazrat Umar, all the prisoners were released. Hazrat Abu Musa advanced towards Sus. Initially, the people of Sus fought back, but soon after they confined themselves to the city. Eventually, when they ran out of food provisions, they laid down their arms. Regarding the details of the events leading to these conquests, Mir Muhammad Ahmed Sahib has presented his research and analysis in his thesis. He writes, Tabari and Baladari contain many differing viewpoints, and perhaps the reason for these differences is that the Persian chiefs of these areas broke their promises and rebelled. This resulted in the Muslim army having to mobilize for battle once again, and the narrations regarding the first conquest became muddled with these events. The campaigns that were launched for a second time was to restore peace. Nonetheless, this is a point mentioned by him. The Battle of rama Hormuz and Tustur. After the Battle of Jalula, Yazdugad, the Persian king moved from Reh to Istakhr, Istakhir was also the name of a place. He had not yet accepted defeat. He began inciting people against the Muslims and tried his utmost to send military reinforcements to fight against the Muslims in Khuzestan, the area where the conquests being mentioned were taking place. Another reason why he was fueling the fire of war in this area was due to the campaigns against the Muslims by the chief of the area, Hormuzan. Hormuzan had taken part in the Battle of qadisiyah and after defeat, he retreated to his hometown. He would carry out constant raids against the Muslims. After the Muslims captured Jalula, the Persians gathered in Ram Hormuz under the command of Hormuzan. Ram Hormuz was a famous city on the outskirts of Khuzestan. On the instructions of Hazrat Umar, Hazrat Saad bin Abi Waqas appointed Numan bin Mukarrin as the commander of the army and sent him from Kufa and also sent Hazrat Abu Musa from Basra. He stated that when the two armies meet, the commander will be Abu Sabra bin Rum. When Hormuzan learnt of the army of Noman bin Muqarran, he set out to confront him, and a fierce battle ensued. Hormuzan suffered defeat, as a result of which he ran towards Tustar. Tustar was a large city at a distance of one day's travel from Khuzestan. Upon arriving here, Hormuzan took refuge in the city. Under the command of Hazrat Abu Sabra, the Muslim army lay siege of Tustar, which lasted for several months. The Persian forces would come out of the fort and launch attacks but would then retreat back and seal the doors. There were 80 skirmishes during this battle. In the final battle, the Muslims launched a fierce attack. When the Muslims put pressure on the siege, two Persians told the Muslims about the route from where water entered the city and from where they could enter and conquer the city. Thus, the Muslims managed to capture the city. In relation to this, Abu Hanifa Dinawari, the author of Akhbar At-Tiwal, has written that the siege laid by the Muslims became prolonged. One night, an honorable man belonging to the city approached Hazrat Abu Musa Ashari and offered to help them take over the city in exchange of protection of his family and wealth. and so. Hazrat Abu Musa Ashari granted him protection. It is written in Futuhat al-Buldan that this particular individual also accepted Islam. He then asked Hazrat Abu Musa Ashari to send someone with him so he could inform him as to how the Muslims could enter the fort. Hazrat Abu Musa Ashari sent Ashras bin Auf, who is a member of the Banu Shaban tribe, with him. They both passed along a small stream and entered the city. This individual then placed a cloak over Ashas bin Auf and told him to walk behind him as if he was his assistant. He led him all around the city and then took him towards the gate of the city where the guards stood and then led him towards Hormuzan, who was holding a gathering at the entrance of the palace doors. After showing him all of this, he then led him back from the same path they came from. Upon returning, Ashas bin Auf related everything to Abu Musa Ashari. Ashat ibn Awf requested Hazrat Abu Musa Ash'ari to send 200 strong soldiers with him and he would kill all the guards and would then open the gates of the city for them and they could join them from the entrance of the city. Hence Ashat ibn Awf along with his companions went along the discreet path and entered the city. They opened the gates of the fort. Upon hearing the sounds of the slogans of Allah is the greatest, Hormuzan ran towards his citadel which was inside the fort. The Muslims surrounded the citadel. Hurmazan peered from the top and stated, I have 100 arrows in my quiver. As long as even a single arrow remains, no one will be able to lay their hands on me. If I am taken captive after that, then that indeed would be an incredible feat. What do you want then? asked the Muslims in response. Hurmazan stated, I will lay down my arms on the condition that the decision regarding me shall be made by Hazrat Umar. Following this, Harmuzan put down his weapons and surrendered himself over to the Muslims. Hazrat Abu Musa Ashari sent Hurmazan to Hazrat Umar in Medina under the watch of Hazrat Anas bin Malik and Ahnab bin Qais. As they entered the city of Medina, they put Harmuzan's silk robe on him, which had been embroidered in gold. Though he was a captive, however, they put his clothes on him which were very elegant, and they placed a crown made of jewels upon his head. This was so that Hazrat Umar and the rest of the Muslims would be able to see him in his true image, and also to show that they had captured such a prominent leader. They inquired from the people where Hazrat Umar was, and they were told that he was in the mosque. When they arrived at the mosque, Hazrat Umar had placed the cloth of his turban under his head and was sleeping. Hurmuzan asked where Hazrat Umar was and they told him that he was sleeping. At the time, there was no one else apart from Hazrat Umar in the mosque. Hurmuzan asked where Hazrat Umar's guards and courtiers were and they told him that he did not require any guards, not any courtiers or aides. Upon this, Hurmuzan instinctively stated that surely this individual seemed to be a prophet. People stated that though he was not a prophet, but he followed the practice of the Prophets. Owing to the conversation of the people, Hazrat Umar woke up and then inquired whether this was Hormuzan and was informed that it was indeed. Hazrat Umar carefully observed his attire and then stated, I seek refuge with Allah from the fire and seek Allah's help. The people stated that this was Hormuzan and requested Hazrat Umar to speak to him. Hazrat Umar stated, Certainly not, unless he removes his extravagant clothing and ornaments he is adorned with. Subsequently, all his extravagant clothes and jewellery were removed, and a conversation with Hormuzan began. Hazrat Umar stated, Have you now witnessed the consequences of breaking your pacts and your deceit? The battles which were fought with them were owing to them breaking their pacts and their deceit. Hormuzan responded, In the era of jahiliyyah, i.e. the era of ignorance prior to the advent of Islam, when God was with neither of us, we were victorious over you. However, now the help of God is with you. This was the response of Hormuzan to Hazrat Umar. Hazrat Umar stated, The reason why you were able to overcome us was because in the era of Jahiliya we were divided and you were united. This was another significant factor. Hazrat Umar then stated, You repeatedly broke your pacts. Thus, what excuse do you present for this? As I mentioned earlier, that the Muslims fought against them owing to them violating their treaties and the pacts and they did not desire to live as peaceful neighbours. Hurmuzan replied, I fear that you will kill me even before I can say anything. Hazrat Umar told him that he need not fear and so Hurmazan asked for some water. Water was brought in an old bowl and Hurmazan stated that he could not drink from such a bowl even if it meant he died as a result of thirst. And so, water was given to him in a bowl befitting his status. And upon this, his hands began to tremble. Hormuzan stated, I fear that whilst I am drinking water, I will be killed. Hazrat Umar stated, Until you do not finish your water, no one will cause you any harm. Upon hearing this, he threw the bowl of water onto the floor. He was very sharp, and so he said that he would not drink any water, because the Muslims would always honour their promises. Therefore, he would not drink any water and threw it on the floor. Hazrat Umar instructed that he should be given water again and that he should not be killed whilst in a state of thirst. Death was indeed the punishment for his crimes of violating the treaties, causing disorder and evil and instigating wars. Hurmuzan responded, I am not thirsty but merely wished to be granted protection through this. Eventually, he spoke the truth. After this, Hurmuzan accepted Islam and took up residence in Medina and he was assigned an allowance of 2,000. It is written in Ibtul Farid that when Hormuzan was taken captive and brought to Hazrat Umar, he invited him to accept Islam, but Hormuzan refused. Hazrat Umar instructed that he should be killed and just as he was about to be killed, he submitted, O leader of the faithful, grant me some water to drink. Hazrat Umar instructed that he be given water. When the bowl of water was placed in his hand, He asked Hazrat Umar, will I remain safeguarded whilst I am drinking water? Hazrat Umar stated, yes. Upon this, Hormuzan threw the bowl of water and stated, you ought to now fulfill your promise. Hazrat Umar stated, I shall grant you some respite and will assess how you conduct yourself." When the sword was taken away, Hormuzan declared, Ashhadu Allah ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika lahu anna Muhammadan abduhu That is, I bear witness that there is none worthy of worship except Allah, and that he has no partner. And I bear witness that Muhammad wasallam, is his servant and messenger. Hazrat Umar asked Hamzan why he did not profess his belief before and replied, O leader of the faithful, I feared lest people think that I become Muslim due to the fear of the sword, because it was held right above my head. After this, Hazrat Umar would consult Hormuzan wherever there was a campaign to be launched against the Persians and would implement his suggestions. Later, he also became one of the advisers of Hazrat Umar. There are some who suspected that Hormuzan was involved in the martyrdom of Hazrat Umar. However, Hazrat Anhu did not consider this viewpoint to be correct. Whilst expounding upon the verses pertaining to Qisas, Hazrat Musleh anhu stated, Once a Muslim was brought before the Holy Prophet who had killed a disbeliever that had entered into a treaty with the Muslims and was thus regarded as one of the subjects of the Muslim government. The Holy Prophet ordered the death penalty as his punishment and stated, Among those who fulfilled their pledges, I am the most strict in honouring my pledges. Hence, this Muslim was punished with the death penalty as he had killed someone with whom they had entered into a treaty. Similarly, Tabari has also recorded a narration wherein Hazrat Ali ordered for a Muslim to be killed because he had killed a dhimmi. There are some who say that it states in Hadith La mu'minun kafirin," That is, a believer should not be killed in retribution for killing a disbeliever. However, upon reflecting over the whole hadith, the entire matter becomes clear. The second part of the hadith is, لا بكافرين ولا ذو في The second part of the hadith, ذو في clarifies the meaning because if we were to take the meaning that a Muslim should not be killed in retribution for killing a disbeliever, then we should not have tra- translate the second part as ولا ذو that is, nor should a non-Muslim Person who has a pact with the Muslims, be killed in retribution for killing a disbeliever. However, no one can accept such an interpretation. Thus, by disbeliever here it means those disbelievers who have taken up arms against the Muslims, i.e. those who are fighting against the Muslims and not an ordinary disbeliever. That is why it is stated that nor should a dhimmi disbeliever be killed in retribution of a disbeliever who is actively fighting. Now let us observe the practice of the companions, as they would also give the death penalty for a non-Muslim who had committed a killing. In Tabari, Qumzan bin Hormuzan relates the incident of his father's death. He narrates, Hormuzan was a Persian leader and was a Majusi by faith. He was suspected to be involved in killing of Hazrat Umar. Subsequently, without carrying out any investigation and owing to his intense emotions, Ubaidullah bin Umar killed Hormuzan. The people of Persia had developed acquaintances with one another in Medina because, as is the case, when one travels to another land, their ethnicity becomes even more distinct. One day, Firoz, who perpetrated the killing of Hazrat Umar, met my father and he had a dagger with him at the time, which had been sharpened from both sides. My father took hold of the dagger and asked him, What do you do with this dagger? Since this was a land where there was peace, therefore there was no need for such a weapon. Upon this, he stated that he used it for guiding and pulling the camels along. Whilst they were both talking to each other, someone happened to see them. Later, when Hazrat Umar was martyred, the individual who had seen them claimed that he had personally witnessed Hormuzan handing over the dagger to Feroz. Upon this, Ubaidullah bin Umar, who was the youngest son of Hazrat Umar, killed my father. When Hazrat Usman became the Khalifa, he called me and handed over Ubaidullah to me. Hazrat Usman stated, O my son, he is the one who killed your father. Thus you have a greater right over him than me, so take him and kill him. And so I took him and headed out of the city. On the way, whoever saw me would join along with us. None of them challenged me, but all they would do was request to me to let them go. I addressed all the Muslims there and stated, Do I have the right to kill him? Everyone replied in the affirmative in that I did have the right to kill him and that they began to reproach Ubaidullah for what he had done was wrong. Then I asked, Do you have the right to free him from me? They all responded saying, No, certainly not. And again they began to reproach Ubaidullah for he had killed my father without any evidence. Upon this, I left him for the sake of God and those people. Having received so many recommendations, so many questions and answers, he says that he left the matter for the sake of Allah and his people. Out of their happiness, the Muslims raised me up on their shoulders, and by God, I reached my home atop people's heads and shoulders, as they did not let my feet touch the ground. This narration shows that it was the practice of the companions that they would give a Muslim who killed a non-Muslim the death penalty as well. It is also proven that no matter the method used, such a person would be killed. Similarly, it is also proven that a murderer could only be detained and given the death penalty by the state. Although in this case he had become a Muslim, but even if it is a non-Muslim, as it seems from all that has been mentioned, the killer of a non-Muslim would be treated in the same manner as the killer of a Muslim, especially in the case where there was a treaty. This also shows that a murderer should be apprehended and punished by the State. No individual can carry this out. Rather, it must be the State. It is evident from this narration that Ubaidullah bin Umar was apprehended by Hazrat Usman and it was he who turned him over to Hormuzan's son. It was not an heir of Hormuzan's who launched a case against him or apprehended him. <laughs> Hazrat the the masih II continues, Here it is necessary to address whether a murderer should be handed over to the heirs of the one who has been murdered in order to be punished, as was done by Hazrat Usman, or should the state see to the punishment itself? It should be remembered that this is a subsidiary matter and Islam has left it to be determined according to the needs of the time. The country can adopt whatever it deems most effective based on its society and conditions. There is no doubt that either of the two methods are only beneficial under specific circumstances. These accounts are ongoing and, God willing, will continue in future sermons. At this time, I wish to mention about some deceased members, after which I will also lead their funeral prayers in absentia. The first is of respected Professor Sayyida Naseem Sayyid Saiba, wife of Muhammad Sayyid Saib, and doctor of Hazrat Al-Hajj, Hafiz Dr. Sayyid Shafii Saib, a researcher from Delhi. She passed away recently at the age of 88 in Pakistan. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. Her father was Hazrat Al-Hajj, Hafiz Dr. Sayyid Shafi Ahmad Sahib, a researcher from Delhi. He authored many books and was an excellent debater, researcher and reputable writer. He published 16 newspapers from Delhi. Hazrat (laughs) Shafi Ahmad Sahib pledged allegiance to the Promised Messiah at the age of 12. He was from the progeny of the subcontinent's renowned Sufi poet Khwaja Mir Dard. He was thus related to Hazrat Mir Nasir Nawab, Hazrat Syed Shafi Ahmed sahib was the nephew of Hazrat Amma jaan Saida Saiba was married in 1957 to respected Muhammad Syed Ahmed sahib an engineer from Lahore Chawni Her daughter Khalda Saiba says while settling the marriage of my parents, my maternal grandmother kept the condition of righteousness at the forefront. She only looked at the fact that at the age of 22 or 23, this young man was a Qaid, regarding whom Hazrat Muslim Maut has said that there was an inactive Jamaat which had a new life breathed into him, and the credit for this goes to their Qaid, Muhammad Sayyid Ahmad and his four or five helpers. Then a Muslim <inaudible> <Hazrat inaudible> mentioned his services to humanity, that during the recent flooding he carried out extraordinary work. Thus from this standpoint he deserves to be praised. a Muslim <inaudible> 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 spoke highly of Nasim Sayyid Saiba's husband, and it was on this basis that Nasim Sayyid Saiba's mother had her marriage settled with him. Naseem Sayyid Saiba is survived by four sons and two daughters. Her services to the faith began in 1954, when she started working with Sayyidah Choti Appa. These services continued until 2015, about 61 years. Since Sayyid Sahiba was in the army, and he would be transferred from time to time, she too would go to different cities with him, where she would have the opportunity to to serve. She too was learned and well-educated. She has about 20 publications, which include stories of prophets, and she has also written various books about esteemed personalities. Her daughter, Hamda Ghafoor says, My mother was devout. She led by example and was an embodiment of sincerity and loyalty, devotion and sacrifice, love and compassion and humility. I always saw her praying with great fervor. She took it upon herself to offer tahajjud prayers, voluntary prayers and obligatory prayers. From the time of the second Khalifa until now, she kept a personal relationship with four caliphs, and she had the opportunity of serving the community as well. She was not able to meet me here, but she would express her sentiments through letters. Her children had also written this, and I myself have seen whenever her letters would be received, they exhibited extraordinary emotion. It was not merely words, rather it could be practically be seen that she had a sincere and loyal connection to Khilafat. May Allah the Almighty enable her children to establish the same connection. Her eldest son, Khalid Sayyid Sahib, says, The main thing she told us was having a connection with Allah and that our connection with Allah should always be such that Allah is like a friend before us. We should inculcate true love for the Holy Prophet wa sallam, in our hearts. She did this herself and taught her children to do the same. She had a strong spiritual connection with the Promised Messiah herself and instilled this in her children as well. She had a strong bond with Khilafat to which she showed obedience herself and taught us to do the same. She was always ready to serve the community. From a young age, she instilled the habit of prayer and Islamic customs within us. She served humanity at all times and would say that we should create ease for others. She gave special attention to financial sacrifices and taught us to tend to our household expenses after having made financial sacrifices. She recited the Holy Quran daily and enjoined us to do the same. Keeping good relations with relatives and maintaining a connection with all relatives, rich or poor, was a salient attribute of hers, and she would advise us to do the same. She was ever ready to call people unto Allah. She constantly advised us to offer dhajjit prayers. She taught us to increase our knowledge and would tell us to always be smiling and to not wish harm on anyone. The qualities of hospitality and honouring guests was imbued within her. May Allah, the Almighty grant her with forgiveness, bestow His mercy and elevate her station. May her children uphold these virtues and enable them to carry forth these virtuous qualities. The next mention is of Daud sulman Bart Sahib of Germany, who passed away at the age of 46 due to cancer. Verily, to Allah we belong, and to him shall we return. Mm-hmm. Ahmadiyyad was introduced to his family mm-hmm. through his great-grandfather, Hazrat Abdul-Hakim Barj Sahib, who is a companion of the Promised Messiah. Okay. He is survived by his wife, a daughter, and two sons. His wife, Sumira Daud Sahiba, says, He was always ready to serve the community and always tried to serve the community as much as he could. He truly gave precedence to his faith over worldly pursuits. Everyone who knew him says that he always had a smile on his face. He was at the forefront of giving alms and charity and he was always ready to serve. In Germany, he used to perform Hifazdikha's duties, and his team members have written that he worked with great joy and carried his duty out with great diligence. Another one of his qualities was that before starting anything, he would first recite the Holy Quran. I have also witnessed that he always performed his duty in an excellent manner. May Allah, the Almighty, grant patience to his family and enable his children to carry on his virtuous qualities. The next mention is of Zaida Praveen Sahiba, wife of Ghulam Mustafa Awan Sahib Dhabi from the district of Sialkot. She passed away at the age of 61. Verily, to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. Her daughter, Hibatul kalim Sahiba, Wife of our missionary Jamil Tabassum Sahib in Bishkirstan, Russia says, By the grace of Allah, my mother was an Ahmadi by birth and was a Musya. Ahmadiyat was introduced to her family through her parents' grandfather, Dada Dewan Bux She says, Ever since I can remember, I have never seen her miss the Tahajid prayer. And she always enjoined her children to her profound love for the community and Khilafat. She is survived by one son and four daughters. Three of her son-in-laws are life devotees and two of her daughters, who are married to missionaries, were out of the country and could not be with their mother in her final moments and see her. May Allah, the Almighty, bestow His forgiveness and mercy upon the deceased. May He enable her children to carry on her virtuous qualities. The next mention is Rana Abdul Wahid Sahib from London, who was the son of Chaudhry Abdul Hay Sahib, subdivision of Jaranwala from the district of Faislabad. He passed away on 26th of June due to a heart attack. Verily, to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. By the grace of Allah the Almighty, he was a Musi. He worked with great devotion under Ansarullah. He also served as Secretary Ziafud and Secretary mal for Masjid Fazal. He was a very hard worker and served with great joy. May Allah the Almighty bestow him with forgiveness and mercy and grant his children and family patience and steadfastness. The next mention is of Al-Haj Mir Muhammad Ali Sahib, former National President of the Ahmadi Muslim Community, Bangladesh. He passed away at the age of 84. Verily, to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. He served in various capacities at the local and national level. From 1997 to 2003, he served as the National President of Bangladesh. Then he served as Secretary Rishtanata and Secretary Tabligh. From 2013 until his last days, he served as the President of the Community in Dhaka. During his time as National President, the community in Bangladesh made great progress, especially in terms of properties and buildings. The Central Mission House was also built during his tenure, along with various mosques. He was a very virtuous, sincere, faithful, regular in tajjud, kind, devoted, and was at the forefront of presenting financial sacrifices. He took great care of the poor and was a very helpful person. He was devoted to khilafat and was an active servant of the community. He is survived by two sons and a daughter. May Allah the Almighty grant His forgiveness and mercy. May He enable His children to carry on His virtuous qualities. As I mentioned, after the prayers, I will offer the funeral prayer in absentia f- for all the deceased members.
0: Alhamdulillah, <laughs> Alhamdulillah, wa 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 bihi wa ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا، We are in the name the ونشهد ان محمدا عبد ورسول يبغ الله يرحمكم الله ان الله يأمر بالعدل واللسان you may ask them to take their